Where's Splinter? Ah, oh, the rat. Huh? So it has a name. It had a name. Uh, you lie! You're listening to KenCast. This episode was recorded in front of a live internet audience. And here's your host, Ken Cole. Hello, and thank you for joining us for a very special KenCast today. We are going to review and look at the classic 1990 movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. A lot of you may know this movie, may have seen it. Some of you may have not seen it. But what we're going to do today is take a special critical look at this movie and try to evaluate it both in the time period it came out and how we would see it today. So we look forward to you joining us. Those of you who are joining us live, it's great to see you. We look forward to your live comments. And for those of you who are watching on the replay, just go ahead and leave a comment below the video and we'll all get to read it forever. Now, in order to have this wonderful conversation, this review of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I brought in a special guest today. You have seen him before on KenCast. He's a well-renowned comedian and writer, and he also happens to be an enthusiast and expert on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Rich Baker. Rich, how are you today? Cowabunga, man. Uh, I'm good. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Always good to talk to you. And uh, as I said before, this is one of my absolute, uh, to you before we started this, this is my absolute favorite movies. Uh, number one, uh, I'm so excited to to dive into it with you. Just thanks for having me. Welcome, and I, I look forward to learning from you and uh, I'm soaking in your wisdom on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because obviously this is a movie that I have seen at so many different points in my life, and it's just something that's very interesting to reflect upon because the turtles continue to live on in grand fashion. So yeah, this is right. kind of from the era when they were super popular for the first time. So, Rich, let me bring up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is the oh, this is the slide. This is the intro slide to the movie. That title comes from the cartoon. That's the same as the cartoon as on the action figures. And I was wondering if you could take us back in time to the beginning of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because what we're going to try to do today, Rich, if, if you agree and you think we can do this, we're going to try to place ourselves back in 1990 when this movie came out and try to go through what it meant to audiences at the time, what it meant to filmmaking at the time, and how it was received at the time. Um, and I think in order to do that, we have to understand where the turtles came from and just the context of the 80s, that type of thing. So I was wondering if you could take us back to the beginning of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yeah. So uh, TMNT started as a comic book, an indie comic book, Right. So you knew DC and Marvel and, and other and I don't know how many major comic book companies there were, but like uh, this was, you know, very independently made, independently distributed. It was black and white and it was meant to be a parody of comic books. Right. It's like what ridiculous superhero team, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it was these guys, uh, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman that came up with them. They were two young kind of struggling artists. And they just like started making each other laugh and drawing these ridiculous drawings. And then eventually like, all right, let's turn this into a comic book. And it was an insanely popular underground comic, but 
the number of people who read underground comics in 1983 was probably about the same as it is today. Not that big a slice of the population. So it's like, it's kind of like did well in the minors, but then how are they going to do in the majors? And as I'm sure you've talked about before, like the eighties was the toy craze mania. That's when everything went up with the toy companies, right? So toy companies were looking for any IP they could to make toys out of. And this was getting, you know, underground comic book. It's successful. So, they, you know, they start a toy line and then you couldn't have a toy line in the 80s without a cartoon. So they had a cartoon and lo and behold, it became one of the most successful cartoons ever. And now you've got this franchise that has money. And, you know, what do you, what's the next big thing? Let's make a movie. Wow. OK, so that's an amazing overview of the Ninja Turtles phenomenon. Uh, what kind of different phases were there in here? Because. My understanding is the comics had a very different tone than, say, the mm -hmm. cartoon. And yeah. I don't know if the toy came before the cartoon. Of course, I first knew about the Ninja Turtles from the cartoon TV show. Um, yeah. But what what were these differences in tone uh, and how did they vary uh, in these different early incarnations? Yeah, so the comic book was uh, dark. It was gritty. Um, they didn't have the different colored masks and bandanas. You know, it was just... Um, they were all red and that was on purpose. Like there was part of the fun was that these turtles were almost interchangeably. You didn't know who you were looking at sometimes. And you know, it was dark. There was a, there was, I, I don't remember the comics well enough. I reread them about six years ago, but even, even still. Um, but I remember, you know, it was like, this is gritty. This was not, you know, there's a reason it was independent. You major distributors weren't going to put this out. It was too, it was a parody that was also very, uh, it was, not quite like Sin City, but like imagine if Sin City had even more humor in it kind of tone. And so the toy makers, you know, they were like, well, we we can't take it exactly, but we like the general concept. Right. So they basically toned it down to a kid's toy. You know what could be. So we got the different colors, of course, you know, like multicolor things and make it nice and easy. OK, Donatello is purple, has a staff, you know, it's like kids. You're like, oh, okay, I get the difference between there and that, you know, and uh, and then the movie, what it did so brilliantly, and and I think it did a lot of things brilliantly, but it really melded the two worlds together. So this, it was an accessible to children, but it wasn't a kids movie, and but it wasn't so dark that it was too removed, and it was this wonderful hybrid of the two because I liked both. I was a huge fan of the cartoon, just like you were, and I was I I known some of the comics i hadn't read like all of them but i had an older brother so i got to kind of clued into some stuff that was a little older than my age but uh but the movie really struck a tone that I, it's it's still my favorite iteration of the turtles to this day yeah and i remember that time very well and one thing that you know and this came out and let's we'll go through some vital stats on this movie okay so this movie came out uh, in on March thirtieth, nineteen uh, ninety. Okay, yeah. This is the March after the release of the Batman phenomenon. That's the original yeah. Batman starring Michael Keaton, the Tim Burton just phenomenon. And for me, I don't know how you feel about this. I remember being young at the time, and what I loved about that first Batman is that all the incarnations that we'd seen, whether in comics or you know, in cartoons or the 60s campy Batman TV series. It was all yeah. very light and cartoony, very kitty. Then along comes the Tim Burton Batman movie. And it's almost like 
for us kids, we took it so seriously. Batman was this high stakes life and death superhero in our brains. And we finally saw that it was adult. It was violent. It was scary. And I think that's why kids love that Batman. It was so edgy. It was almost forbidden. And this movie, I don't know whether intentionally or unintentionally came out really it seems like at the perfect time like on the coattails of batman it's almost like what you're saying it it did it did the kind of a similar thing 100 percent uh do you remember how old you were when this movie came out um i think i was nine okay yeah i was eight right so we're both pretty much the same the same age there and um yeah like i so when batman came out i love batman i mean great great movie one of the best of all time absolutely when it came out it was it was the first time I really felt that something that felt like it kind of belonged to me, even though Batman was way older than, than our generation, but it, he still felt like mine because I read Batman comics and I watched the Batman thing. And so he kind of felt like, Oh, this is like one of my guys. And so when they put him on the screen uh, and it was just like, Whoa, you know, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I had not read the Frank Miller batman stuff that was the darker stuff you know that had come out before then so this one that he was like it as an eight-year-old it felt like an i was like i got to look into like an adult version of of a character who felt so close to me right 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 yeah and it was the same with the turtles right this like you know they curse they say damn right like they're it's a little more adult (laughs) <laughs> i know it's it's so funny watching this again you see the cursing and as a kid you're like oh you said a bad word and they say it with such conviction even though it's like the most minor of curse words it's yeah. just it's, it has that impact you know yeah um, make it just a little edgy right but you know i think that uh, you know so the, the batman came came out and it was great and then to me this felt like okay this is the new like uh someone set the bar pretty high with batman and to me, the Turtles, now they were both filmed during the same time. So it's not like the filmmakers got to see anything or knew, know about Batman to help influence them. But I think they both knocked it out of the park so well that like these two movies really set this idea of like, we can take children's characters and put them at a high level that can appeal to a lot of different ages and a lot of different types of people. Yeah, very, very well said. And so we're we're heading into March. Did you have this anticipation? Uh, did you was this on your radar from the first notices, or did this kind of surprise you that they were making a Ninja Turtles movie? No, no surprise. I was I was psyched. <laughs> okay, I remember. Do you remember like the uh, the Pizza Hut commercials that would like tease it and all that kind of right. stuff? And you know, of yes. course, you saw those when you're watching the cartoons. So it's like, if you were already a fan, they knew exactly where to, to advertise for it. And it was like, every kid was like, mom, we're going to the movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you make a great point. You saw these during the cartoons. Of course, mm-hmm. this is a live action. They made a decision to make a live action movie, which seems yeah. like a challenge. When you were yeah. a kid, were you, did you have any qualms about that or were, did that excite you that this was going to be a live action movie or did you buy that? I, I, I love to have such a good memory that I could tell you exactly my mindset. I, you know, like me now definitely remembers being screwed by the He-Man movie. Right. 
Like, oh, right. Yes. He Man yes. was my guy. I loved his cartoons, you know, at that age. And then they made this movie and it was garbage. And <laughs> so, you know, was I aware enough to bridge that gap and kind of like go, I hope they don't screw this up? It's possible. It's possible. But I also just remember being so turtle mania turtle fever at the time that i probably didn't care i would have just you know it was like bart simpson of like crusty just like whatever you slap a turtle on i'm buying it like let's come we'll bring it on absolutely well did that's you, great were and you at like did, did you have a sense of what was coming i i think i was so into the ninja turtles at this point that yeah. i was just rapidly eating up any sort of turtles content and the idea that this was um live action made me super excited and i think i saw the name jim henson being thrown around and so i had mm. good good connotations with the name jim henson so i th i was sure. i was excited it seemed like this was going to be a quality thing i remember some other people i don't know maybe adults or something like kind of going eh, i don't know this is this is going to be good or bad um i seem to remember maybe on the news or something people debating about whether this was actually going to be successful or not which is kind of weird to look at in hindsight. But, yeah. Um, you know, of course, no one knew. I guess it was a big gamble. Um, and we'll be getting into that soon. I want to say a quick hello to everyone watching. Um, General Obvious, good to see you. I didn't grow up in the night with the 1990 TMNT movie, but it's one of my favorites, along with the second film. That's right, because this nice. spawned spawned a whole franchise. Yeah, um, trilogy, yeah. Yes. Now we have a question. Cobra Kai Underground asks, what is TMNT, DC or Marvel, or is it its own thing? Well, Rich, I think now it's owned by Nickelodeon. Uh, I believe that's correct. And they clearly uh, had some ability to cross over with DC because there is a wonderful movie, if you're a TMNT fan, uh, that came out a few years ago, Batman versus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it's mwah, chef's kiss. But uh, wow. At the time, the original comics, as I said, they were independent. It was called Mirage Studios. And so they, and because of the success of the Turtles, they kind of were their own. They didn't have to be part of Marvel or DC. They were kind of their own thing. They had, they had enough money to kind of run their own thing for a while. So I don't know when or they sold or, or merged or whatever, but they started original. Guys, thank you for your comments. We will uh, work in your comments as we work yeah. through this movie. Uh, so, Rich. Let me start off by just going over some basics of this movie, just in case someone's mm -hmm. watching or listening that hasn't seen it. So they'll have a bit of context. Um, the synopsis of this movie is four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles emerge from the shadows to protect New York City from a gang of criminal ninjas. That could probably be the synopsis of many comics or episodes. Sure, movies. Uh, it was directed by Steve Barron, and he was known for directing music videos at the time, like Billy Jean and Take On Me. And he also directed Coneheads, 1993, uh, big screen version of the Saturday Night Live skit, uh, and a few others. Um, it stars Judith Hogue as April O'Neil. The, the only time we saw Judith Hogue is April April O'Neil. Um, mm -hmm. Elias uh, Cotius. You know, yeah, uh, <laughs> that I, that's according to Google. I, I don't have okay. firsthand info. Uh, he plays Casey Jones, a very interesting character in this movie. And we even have a I have a very young Sam Rockwell as a thug. So this has to be yeah. one of his first film role, roles. It's great. Uh, voice cast includes Corey Feldman as Donatello, Robbie Rist as Michelangelo, Josh Pice as Raphael, Brian Tochi as Leonardo and Kevin Clash 
Elmo as Splinter, which is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. The movie runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. The budget is $13.5 million. It was in theaters for nine months and grossed $202 million worldwide, which is stunning. I think if you, if in today's money, that would probably be somewhere around $600 million worldwide, which is huge. Yeah. Yeah, they did really well on that investment. And it was uh, it actually broke the record for biggest, you know, and it's kind of funny the same way the comic was an independent comic. Um, this was an independent movie. This wasn't tied to a major studio. And it, so it broke the record for biggest um, grossing, biggest box office weekend and total for independent movie. And it would hold that until 99 when Blair Witch finally broke it. That is so fascinating because we're so used to the New Line Cinema logo, which appears at the beginning of this movie. But you're saying it was actually an independent movie. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, and I, I'm not the expert to know exactly what all that means, but it was not a like independently, I because New Line Cinema they um, distributed it, but they didn't create it. Right, uh, Golden Harvest is the one who produced it, uh, and they looked forever to find a distributor until finally uh, New Line Cinema agreed to it. That's so amazing that they had any trouble getting a distributor. It, it it seems like it would be a slam dunk, but I guess I guess it wasn't. Well, that's Hollywood, right? And it's like you, you go, look, we've got a movie based on the most popular children's franchise of all time that is at the height of its popularity. And, you know, Disney and Warner Brothers, like, pass, pass. Right. You're like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That is a very common story in Hollywood. That's that's a really good point. Um, Alan Stavros, a very old friend of mine, is joining us uh, and says, Ken, did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles inspire you in your original aspirations in martial arts? Um, I think it it coincided with that interest, Al, but actually I th it was the Karate Kid, those movies that made me really interested in martial arts. But this is, and we'll get back to this, Rich, I think just an incredible martial arts movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for kids, yeah. just, just absolutely incredible. So... Okay, let's dive into this, Rich. From the opening frame, I know you've seen this so many times. From the opening frame, you've got that opening sequence where uh, April O'Neil is narrating this crime wave problem across the city. And you have kind of a montage of all these things happening. You have teases of the Foot Clan. What did this do to you kind of watching this uh, as a kid? What did you think of it? The tone, the approach? Uh, the way they tease things. What What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I love this question. The, um, you know, I I was very familiar with New York and movies. I'd never been there at this point in my life, but you know, I'd seen it in like Crocodile Dundee and you know other things like that. And the way that they, I, I wouldn't have put it in words at the time, but you know, what I see now is they really do a great job of making New York a a major character in this film. It's not just any city. It's like the, the turtles are tied to New York for a reason. And the way that they show the different uh, types of people as they're getting robbed, you know, the kind of the April who's, you know, the hard hitting New York reporter. And then the, uh, the, the chief of police who's like this, you know, kind of gruff guy or whatever. And it's like, it really sets a tone that this is not the cartoon. And I mean, that's literally the tagline. It's, you know, this is no car. Hey, dude, this is no cartoon. And you like, they tell you in that first thing, like, this is kind of a gritty, almost noir. There it is. Yeah. Hey, dude, it's no cartoon. It's, it's, it's kind of a noir film and it feels New York and it feels gritty. Right. 
And uh, I know I appreciated that. I know we talked about that a little before, but the idea that this was a more adult version, that this yeah. uh, the stakes seemed real. It was yeah. uh, very gritty. Even now, I really admire, I think, even from this opening sequence, just how it's shot. I love the cinematography in this movie. Um, it was just so, I don't know how to put it. You could say it was kind of artsy in a way, but it just felt very uh, gritty, raw, and real for such a fantastical subject. It felt to me, I like all that you're saying. T t the way I put it is, it felt to me like Steve Barron was trying to also not only do a love letter to the fans of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but also do a love letter to people who loved 70s cinema. Like this felt like, you know, uh, like like kind of like a taxi driver kind of thing mm -hmm. or like Injustice for All or those kinds of like more gritty, real, like grounded movies. Like this felt like that could have fit in there. Right. And one thing I really appreciated how Steve Barron approached this was he kept teasing things. Like I really enjoyed how like everything was teased until we got an amazing reveal. And it's, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they understood how popular the turtles were while they were making this, but it's almost like they knew that they had these stars that people were going to be waiting to see these characters and they kept teasing and holding back. And uh, one of those examples I think is that kind of near the opening after that, you see April leaving, you know, going out to an alley, she sees a rat and then she runs into a bunch of thugs that are tied to the Foot Clan. And then Raphael comes to the rescue. When you get the slow motion sigh knocking out the light. And you just hear him fight. Uh, yeah. you, you just hear him in the darkness. And you, yeah. you know, oh, it's a turtle. And then you see that just, just that little bit of him, you know, in the sewer. Like, what did this do? I mean, at the time... Ooh just as a kid, but like this approach where it's just teasing where they're not giving it to you yet. Uh, how effective do you think that is? It was great. It was because even though, you know, there's no surprise that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are in this movie. What the surprise is we've never seen live action version before. And so like, we don't know what they're going to look like. You know, we, we saw it a little bit in the trailer, but you know, they, they did a really good job in this movie of like, when you finally see them, you like, oh, it's a big reveal. And you're kind of wondering what they're like. And also it goes again to this noir, gritty, dark. You know, the first scene happens in the dark. It's very similar to Jaws. You know, you don't see the shark at first. You just see the effects of it, right? You just hear these sound effects. And then when she picks up the sigh, there was something, there's some of that, that like just picking it up of like this cartoonish like weapon that's actually real being held by someone who doesn't know how to hold it. And it's, and then you see, and it, what's the first word you hear? Damn. Damn. <laughs> right, exactly. The first word you hear out of these childhood megastars is damn. And I was just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I don't know about you, but this was the age where on the schoolyard, it's like, uh, I, you know, a lot of us discovered swearing oh, and yeah. uh, just third grade, fourth grade, that, that type of thing. And just the, the, the expletive just flowed. Cause it's like a whole new world and you figure you can use all these, I mean, sorry, parents who are watching this, but yeah, the, it's just that age where you discover all of these curse words and then yeah, to hear Raphael, you're like, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, no, that's great. so it goes right into the opening sequence. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we have the opening titles and then we have the reveal of the Ninja Turtles in the sewer. Yeah. This is where we see them in their suit for the very first time. Yeah. So Rich, and we hear that. Da -na -na -da -da -na -da -da -na, right. It's that that music has nothing yes. to do with the cartoon. It's this uh, uh, the, the music was 
really well done. I, I'm, I'm not remembering the guy's name offhand, but I'll look it up in a second. But uh, it's John Dupre. The music, John Dupre. Yes, thank you. Uh, his his whole score is it it hits you right here and it keeps going and it's it's really brilliant. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. That, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. He had done a lot of work with Monty Python, like he did Meaning of Life, he did Life of Brian, he did uh, he did the score for A Fish Called Wanda, uh, he did the score for UHF, we were Weird Al Yankovic's movie, and he it's it's a very interesting score because it's like he has that upbeat main turtles theme, which is fun, and you have that kind of synth sound. Um, but then he also leans into like the, the rock distortion guitar, especially yeah. around, uh, shredder. And it's this, this, he goes, he seems to run the gamut between very light and happy and uplifting and kind of really dark and grungy. And, uh, yeah. I, I assume you had the soundtrack as a kid. hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, I wore that tape out. I listened to it over <laughs> and over and over and over again. Yeah. Did you? Um, yes, I did too. Uh, I, do, do, do you remember? Do you have a favorite section or score uh, from the uh, of the score from the movie? Um, yeah, I think uh, you know the final fight scene with Shredder. Obviously, like it's just so you know, like it's dark and it's just it gets ominous and it's it's kind of perfect. Like how the music goes with a lot of the the fighting and uh, as it happens, it, it I think it's just a really well done sequence. What about you? Yeah, I, I think my personal favorite was sh the Shredder's Suite. I think that's what it was called, um, mm. where you have that introduction of the Shredder. Because yeah. as a kid, uh, I love the Shredder as a villain. Sure. And Steve Barron and the filmmakers, uh, they tease the Shredder for quite a bit. And they tease him as almost this Darth Vader-esque villain. You don't see yeah. him. You kind of see him in silhouette. And then when you see him, he's like walking down this long hallway and you just have like almost like the drums in the distance. And yeah. it's like really builds him up and you have that shredder suite that he just comes in with the guitar and he's just, you see him from the back and he turns and you're like blinded by that glint off his helmet. And uh, I just love the music there. I love that entire sequence. It was just such a brilliant cinematic way to introduce what had really been a cartoon character. I mean, he just seemed yeah. real bad and dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts with a speech. Like the first, you know, you'd think shredder, you'd start with a fight or something. Nope. Starts with a speech. Cool. Like a calm <laughs> speech. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, uh, but yeah, was, Wait, I love it. It, it. it happens. It happens, Rich. We can't, we can't help ourselves. Um, yeah, yeah. We're but, just enthusiastic. We, we are now. Okay. So looking back at this and you could, I don't know, from a realistic critical eye, when you have those turtles jumping out for the first time, we have that reveal of them. What do you think of those costumes, those suits? Um, did they work? Do they work? Do they hold up? I, I think a, a million percent they work. I think they are the absolute best version of live action Ninja Turtles ever that I've ever seen. And I, I hope at some some point someone can come up with better ones, not because those aren't good, but just because so that we can still heighten. But I'm fine with those being the best because like th that's Jim Henson working on a budget, you know, and but they're so expressive. And what matters to the turtles isn't just their fighting, which is, again, we'll talk about the fighting sequences are perfect, but the expressions on their faces, we can talk about so many little moments where you feel such empathy for these turtles. Right. And that's 
those those costumes i know they were hell to film in uh for the people who actually had to be in there but man i'm so glad they did right and you know you mentioned like the best incarnation because we had costumes also worked on by jim henson in the second one and then another company did the third one and then i think after that they've always been cg uh pretty mm. much and so what was it about this first set do you think that that really nailed it you know it's they there's enough puppetry in there that you can tell they're not real real but there's an there's so much detail in there that you suspend your belief without much effort right like there's little liver spots on the turtles and you know there's little scars and stuff from battle wounds and you know they very they very much look lived in right they and they look you know like their height and their width and their disproportion like compare you know they're acting with people in almost every scene and it looks like okay this is probably what it would look like if these things were actually walking around the real world right yeah and i appreciated how each one there were just such minute differences between the different turtles and i could be wrong if i'm remembering right uh, further incarnations of this i think they tended to look kind of samey but in mm. this one you know they they all like the shapes of their heads are slightly different and um you know it's really great um i'm wondering and i can't answer this but kids today would they be so used to seeing, say, CG incarnations of the turtles? Would they kind of dismiss outright, do you think, these kinds of low-tech, you know, old-school suits? Or do you think that's something that that kids or younger people would would actually buy? I would like uh, to believe that in the same way we can respect, like, you know, brass instruments that were invented 400 years ago, that are just still classic and good that hold it like a good saxophone or what a trumpet or whatever. Like um, that, that, that kids today can still watch. I don't know what it's like to be a kid, but uh, in modern day, but they're so good. They look good. Like they still, they don't look wonky. Like I'm not making a big leap when I rewatch it to go, Oh, it's kind of weird, but I'll forgive it. Like, I don't feel like I have to do that. Right. And actually I'll, I'll bring up here. Here's a uh, picture of jim nice. henson and in that set in the sewer set for the opening sequence um kind of with his with his creation uh pretty pretty cool pretty cool stuff and as you can um, see the four faces are individual like they're all turtles but like their muscles are a little different their faces are a little different like they they these were crafted with love they weren't just mass produced right which is so fascinating because you know you were telling us that this is an independent movie and it's just so fascinating that jim henson they got jim henson on board even though this yeah. movie didn't have a distributor um i guess they had enough of a budget or maybe the project was so intriguing to jim henson that uh that he did it and i think man how lucky we were i mean he's uh he was he was a very singular genius in terms of coming up with this stuff and um yeah. ninja turtles 3 i think you can look at that movie and see that another company did that and uh you know it's just not just not as good and i believe um, correct me if i'm wrong but i believe this was his last movie before he died yes yeah. yes i think this came out and yeah he died just a few months before. after so yeah mm. and then they dedicated the second movie to him so oh, nice. that's uh yeah, yeah. It's, it's it was sad St still is sad um oh, very much so. hey 
Hey, Emmett, how you doing? Thanks for watching today. Uh, General Obvious says, it's funny how Karate Kid 3 and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are only a year apart. Karate Kid 3 feels so 80s while TMNT feels so 90s. It's kind of, it is fascinating, Rich, because you brought up the idea that Ninja Turtles, the way Steve Barron was approaching this, was very reminiscent of 70s cinema. And then yeah. you had... It's it's almost I don't know what the cheesiness of the 80s was maybe kind of going away a bit like not saying some of this movie wasn't wasn't cheesy, but it, it did seem sure. like it was kind of get beyond the 80s. Well, the 80, 80s movies to me feel very glossy and perfect. Right. Like, uh, you know, uh, as, even Karate Kid, which I love, you know, a little gritty, but, you know, it's very like it's very clean edges. Right. Whereas um, this movie I think part of the reason it might feel 90s is because I think it influenced a lot of the 90s. I think a lot of you know producers and filmmakers said that movie made a lot of money. Figure out something from there that helps us make a lot of money, you know, and uh, rightfully as it should, just like Batman or any other movie. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it feels. I think I think it might feel 90s because it set the, it set trends. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then Jan says, "Colden Harvest was well known for low budget films in Hong Kong." As uh, Rich was talking about, all the best Kung Fu films were distributed by Golden Harvest. And maybe we're very fortunate that Golden Harvest did this because they had no reservations about putting in tons of fight scenes, which, you know, we see, you know, throughout this movie. And we'll we'll get to that. But uh, thank you so much, Jan, for your comment. Yeah. Um, and then Alan says, I highly recommend on Netflix watching TMNT, the toys that made us episode. I haven't seen that and how great. it all evolved. It's a great documentary. Have you seen that, Rich? Yeah, it's great. Highly recommend it. Agreed. Nice, and nice. back that whole series, the toys that made us, the movies that made us, both really great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll have to check that out. I'd be so curious to see um, the back the backstory to all of this. So, yeah. so Rich, you know, we kind of talked about the suits and the the setup. This movie also deals with a number of interesting themes you know anger family loss of family members uh what makes a real family and yeah. i think those themes kind of make for the more quote touching parts of this movie but did you feel that those things were i don't know appropriate for this movie or did they fit in um especially regarding the target audience to me a good story um starts with the main character and then folds out from there and it's like so your main character is four teenage turtles that they're and i i love where it started it didn't start with their very first origin but it also wasn't super far into it it was like literally the the opening fight scene they say was their first battle so all they'd done was train up until that point so we, we saw them in a really really fun time um but uh, uh and i lost what the heck was your question i'm so sorry <laughs> Oh, like those, um, right. Those themes, um, you know, of anger and loss yeah. of family. How, so how did you, those integrate? Well, you got these teenagers who are coming of age, right? And so who are the bad guys? The people who are manipulating teenagers who are coming of age, you know, you know the shredder is basically like the surrogate father figure. That's what he calls himself. I'm your father. Right. It's literally Darth Vader. Now that I think about it, right. <laughs> but, um, it's like, Durr. but anyway, um, you know, he's, he's taking all these kids who have troubled homes or, you know, or rebellious or whatever. And he's manipulates them for his own use. And then you've got the opposite, which is splinter who, who goes out of his way. He doesn't have to raise these turtles, but he does so, so that he can, uh, you know, help them be better and help make society better. And so you've got these two, cause you know, the main, main uh, characters are the turtles, but I would say 
like Splinter and Shredder are the arc of the whole thing. And they're polar opposites in what they do, even though they do the same thing for different reasons. Right. And, you know, you bring up kind of the backstory. Uh, what did you think of those flashback sequences that super gritty, like puppet sequences that give the backstory of the turtles and also the Shredder? Yeah. Right. It's, you know, again, even though they one was not influenced by the other, very similar to Batman, right? It's like we we don't get his backstory till a little bit later in flashbacks. And I thought it was really, you know, if you hadn't, if you were taking your kids to see this and you didn't watch the cartoons, or if you were just whoever and didn't watch the cartoons, this gave you everything you needed to know. And so it was it was it was helping the people who weren't fans, and it was also a little fan service of like, yeah, we know where we came from too, and this is the story you like. Right. And then we have some comments about uh, Shredder and his uh, Foot Clan. Clifford says, when the Foot Clan emptied out the loaded truck in a matter of seconds, blew me out of my chair. Totally yes. agree with that. And then Dude says, that skateboard, skateboard ramp in the arcade area of the Foot's headquarters still blows my mind. I wish someone would cre recreate that whole area. Well, you know, Rich, we're, as we're kind of getting into this movie, we see this warehouse, we see Shredder's base of operations. And as a kid, I was just so entranced by this idea. It's like, you could have anything you want, you know, yeah. looking back on it, it's very reminiscent of Pinocchio's pleasure Island, you know, where they yeah. get all these like young boys to go and they get to do all these things they're not supposed to do. You know, in this movie, you know, the first shot, you see that kid chomping a cigar playing pool and uh, you know, they're skateboarding, they're smoking, they're playing poker you know, doing everything they shouldn't do and they can have anything they want as long as they go out and steal it. And yeah. uh, what did you think of this as a kid watching this? Did you want to join in this world? Would you be tempted to take part in this? I wouldn't have no, Cause I was just one of those like super straight laced kids and like mm, smoking, you know that, <laughs> but, uh, but I love from a storyteller's point of view, even as a kid, I recognize like that same thing, but like, um, with uh, uh um uh, what's his name um but to <laughs> the peter pan the idea that like oh he's this is how he manipulates he gets them addicted it's just like you know the basic trick all right get addicted to the good stuff and then we bring you into the harder stuff and then you're in this cult that you have no chance of getting out of right did you were you and, said, like did you want to go to this place and skateboard and stuff i think i love the idea of being able to do like that's that was kind of attractive to me as a kid. It's like, oh, there are no rules. Is there a place like this where you can kind of do what you want? Now, seriously, I, I never thought of doing it, but I think there is that that allure is there. Like I could understand oh, why kids. Yeah. yeah, the fantasy of it. And I can understand why kids would want to do that. Um, yeah. But you're, you're right. You kind of know that it's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. And no. um, but even in that sequence, you're right. You go to the next level. And you have the introduction of uh, Master Tatsu, right? Yeah. And he is kind of walking through and going to the next level where the older kids, you know, are being trained and they're yeah. being trained to be lethal fighters. And uh, I don't know what, what do you think of this entire sequence? Because you see these different levels of indoctrination, I guess you could say, yeah. um, in a short span. And you have this character of Master Tatsu. You know, and he wasn't from the cartoons. And if he was from the comics, I didn't remember him at all. So, like, he was brand new to me. So I didn't know. He, but, I mean, he's very scary. Obviously, he's trying to, you know, portray the scary guy. And and so when this kid runs into him, you, you're you teased. It's getting, you know, he's, as you said, this director's really good teasing of, like, you think, oh, man, this kid's about to get, you know, his face knocked off or something. And he just goes, go play. 
And you're like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then mo moments later, you see Todson kick a, a kid in the face, bowing to him, you know? So. Right, exactly. So it's like you can't trust him. And uh, it that part always reminded me of in the original Karate Kid when Mr. Miyagi was saying, you know, when Daniel was bowing and he looked down, he like slapped Daniel and said, always look I, you know, which is kind of similar to what Master Tatsu said is never lower your eyes to an enemy, you know? Yeah. Um, and let me, and I'll just, if we're talking about that, let me, let me bring this up because here's another Karate Kid connection. Pat Johnson, who was yep. the stunt coordinator for the Karate Kid movies, he was also the stunt coordinator for uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2. And so there's also that connection. And uh, I don't know what you think, Rich, but I think uh, he really outdid himself in this movie. Oh, man. I mean, if you want to talk about the fight sequence, we talk about that all day, about how I still think they're better than almost any modern day fight sequence I see in any movie. Like, I, I the way he trained and, uh, you know, in that same picture, um, uh, Ernie Reyes Jr., who's playing Donatello in the in the suit. He's not his voice. He, plays, he would play Kino in The Secret of the Ooze. So it was like an interesting right. little uh, promotion he got. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly and then he was in other things wasn't he he was in surf ninjas surf and like other ninjas <laughs> yeah yes yeah 100 um, well so these let's talk about these fight sequences because i'm gonna make a statement here and those of you in the comments uh rich you can disagree with me i think for any pg movie ever made this has the highest quality and the highest amount of martial arts fighting and choreography like in movie history uh i never thought about that you know about the rating but yeah yeah i'm sure you're right 100 percent. yeah yeah it's it's like and i think this was the last time that this happened it's it's there was a lot of artistry i think and you know and skill in the martial arts sequences uh if you look at this movie i think that just the choreography is is wonderful there are always gags um so it's something that's always there's always humor um, there was a lot of thought and variety put into all of these fight sequences. And there are just so many of them that as a yeah. kid, I know I lapped it up. But then um, I guess we can talk about the parents and their complaints later. But I don't know. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on all of these uh, fight sequences? I, th I think they're brilliant. I think that fight sequences uh, to action movies are similar to mu you know songs and musicals. Like it's cool if they're pretty, but they better forward the plot or else I don't care. And I think all these fight sequences make perfect sense where they are. I think they heighten the story. And from a shooting point of view, man, just thank God for Golden Harvest because like wide shots, stunts, not yes. born identity. I'm dizzy so many cuts transformers i don't even know what's happening kind of it's like no we're gonna train the people to do the cool stuff and we're just gonna shoot it right yeah. i know that's such a great point because it wasn't too much after this that you're right that became a very common thing just like tight shaky shots uh you know no master shots of these things you really many times can't appreciate the skill of the people involved and this you always knew what was going on you had a sense of space um yeah, just really wonderful fight sequences and really, I think, inventive shots, like iconic things. Like, uh, I don't know if they were thinking this when they were making it, but, you know, when they lay down Michelangelo, he's down and he's like spinning. But you have that overhead shot. But the the I, the, just the vision, the image of a life-size turtle 
like spinning like that. It's just, it's such a unique, iconic image uh, yeah. that had never been seen before. And uh, I, I don't know, I, was, I always loved how they did these fight sequences. Oh, I love it. And, you know, they, we took a break in the fight sequence for, for a nunchuck battle. Right. Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, a fellow chucker, eh? It it doesn't make like logical sense, but in the narrative of the film, I I still don't even question it. I'm like, of course we're going to do this right now. This makes perfect sense. Of course, everyone stop fighting, watch these two go at it. Right. And so and, and we've got to talk about humor because there's humor all throughout these fight scene uh fight scenes, but also throughout the whole movie. Like lots of yes. gags all the time. Obviously, Michelangelo is really funny you're a comedian give us your perspective on the humor in this film how difficult it may have been to execute that humor given the costumes constraints that type of thing um and how the humor helps the movie i don't i mean i know every line in this movie there's not a single moment in this movie where it feels like the movie's saying here's a joke it's never pushing it the characters are just being earnest and honest. And that has always been my favorite type of humor. It always will be. And so when, you know, the Ninja Turtles are in April's apartment watching, you know, an old cartoon of the, the tortoise and the hare. And he's like, you know, and he's cheering him. I was like, Ninja kick the damn rabbit. Do something. It's like, <laughs> that's not a joke. That's just him being angry. And like, it, it, and that's why it's good humor. Right. Right. That's. That's really great. And following up on your comment on the nunchucks, uh, Jaws says, I wish Tom Cole would use nunchucks like Michelangelo in Cobra Kai season six. Great tribute. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because the turtles themselves really popularized, of course, to an entire generation, what these weapons were. Nunchucks. Oh, yeah. Uh, katana yeah. blade, bow, and sigh. And uh, we really got some amazing examples of them using this we using these weapons in real life and i know that seems like a small thing but to actually to a kid that is huge to actually yeah. see real people or turtles using real weapons in these fight scenes yeah and uh this is skipping way too far ahead but just like of you know you've got two sides and two katanas uh but there's only one actual moment in the entire movie where any uh anyone gets cut and it's the uh, very final fight scene. Uh, so it's like, you know, you're talking about PJ, PG in the action sequence. It's like, what a brilliant way to make us still feel like they're using these weapons to their full extent, but not actually having to slice someone's head off or do anything crazy like that. Right, right. It's, uh, it's almost like you can appreciate the skill, the artistry of the fights, and you don't have to worry about gore. Uh, at all yeah it's it's a really great balance uh tig terry silver rocks who is a champion member of this channel thank you for joining us today not only is she a champion on the channel she's a champion in real life and i want to say thank you because she is an executive producer of this ken cast right now so th thank you so much tig terry silver rocks um so obviously the turtles get into trouble and there's the sequence where the foot clan burns down they pretty much ruin april o'neill's pad and then they have yeah. to go out to the country and we have this interesting sequence that's away from the city you know where they have to go out and find themselves again and tell us your thoughts on this sequence rich um what do you think story-wise is trying to accomplish and and does it work 
Um, it's the uh, I always forget the guy's name, but the hero's journey guy, right? You know him. Uh, yes, Joseph Campbell. He, Joseph Campbell, right? He talks about like you know going into the cave, right? And to me, the farmhouse is very much the cave. As a kid, um, I just remember just I was just excited about wherever the movie wanted to take me, so I didn't care. But I the farmhouse did feel kind of random. But what I didn't remember, and I don't know, again, I don't remember how many of the comics I read before watching the movie, but rereading the comics, this is this whole sequence is almost taken verbatim from the comics. Oh wow! Yeah, and so it was just another nod of the screenwriter directors of saying like no we understand both worlds we're we're giving you both we got you kind of thing but as far as like a story you know you're seeing Raphael just sitting in a tub you know coma he's in a coma basically right they don't say that but he is and then you've got Donatello and Casey Jones kind of having their thing and then uh uh Leonardo's just like sad all the time and like wanting splinter back and then you've got the Casey Jones April kind of sexual tension happening like I don't know it's there was no action in it but it didn't bother me I just love these characters were so earnest and like I cared about them and I wanted to see what was next right and you had uh April through voiceover kind of pushing the story along and she's drawing illustrations of the different turtles and it's it's an interesting sequence because there are some interesting vignettes, but you know, looking back on it, I noticed that uh, we don't see her talking about Michelangelo. We don't see her talking about Raphael, and then she talks about Casey Jones, and she's like all you know, kind of happy or whatever. But it's almost like she's drawing him, but it doesn't show that she's drawn him. Um, and so I was wondering during the sequence if there was material that was potentially cut out, and. Um, I don't know. And there are some other things too, like with the HD versions. Now you can see that it's Michelangelo who's standing on the roof and yelling splinter. You can see his nunchucks, but it sounds like Raphael. It does and sound like Raphael. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting, I wonder if there was some story that would have put Michelangelo there. Like he was going through some, some trouble uh, during that time. Um, but I don't know if, I don't know if you remember in the comics, I'm wondering if the comics kind of, maybe mm-hmm. give some clue uh, as to maybe what they're doing. They probably do. I, you know, I should reread them again. I have forgotten so much uh, at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, you know, it's funny. I, I've never thought to look up and see any like uh, deleted footage or anything like that. Like, I don't know if there's scenes out there that they shot or, or anything, a script that they didn't do. Yeah. I'd be curious about that. I know uh, a little bit. I know that there was a lot of editing that was done. Like there were multiple cuts. I think Steve Barron had his cut and the studio came and they completely did a recut, made it shorter. And I think the final edit is really great. I think it's fantastic. Although I am wondering, you know, could there be a PG-13 or R-rated, like a more adult Mm. version kind of? in there that you know we don't have that footage right now but if they put the footage back in if they maybe emphasize different things maybe if there's more violence on-screen violence that type of thing i'm wondering if there's a more adult version of this movie uh god if there was i would love to see it uh yeah now now i'm gonna go on a a little (laughs) fact-finding mission (laughs) later this weekend apparently uh well, by the way someone uh matt moore said uh, uh i love casey jones chopping vegetables with leo's katana that is <laughs> again what a great joke that isn't like a joke you know they they rush to this farmhouse there's probably not a lot of tools and stuff and so he's like yeah use the katana why not and it's just su- such a throwaway but like what a lovely memory that we still think about thanks for that man 
Absolutely. And uh, Jan says, I love that scene with Leonardo and Raphael when they make up and hug. Very, very touching. Dude says, farmhouse sequence is beautiful. The whole thing is epic. And yeah, Rich, I think we can see it's just people who watch this movie really enjoyed that sequence. It was like a very important character building sequence. And I don't know if that would exist nowadays. Like if you had like a, a kid, you know, I don't know, cartoon based movie like this, would they take the time to have this character building section, like with no fighting away from the villains? I I don't know. It feels very unique. I I gotta say, you know, again, it definitely feels kind of like that independent cinema, right. Of like, we're going to go to this farmhouse, you know, and, and part of the reason why it was cheap to shoot in that farmhouse. Um, But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful sequence. It's just, and, and if you, if you were to put me in the mindset of someone in 1988 hearing a pitch and be like, and then we're going to have this whole sequence where we go to the farm, I'd be like, no, 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 no. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> are in New York. Don't take them out of New York, right? I'd be that idiot right. who would have, you know, let this gem go away. Right. Um, we've had some comments talk about Casey Jones. You've mentioned Casey Jones. You've mentioned the sexual tension between April O'Neil and Casey Jones. What do you think of that? What do you think of their relationship there's that that scene i think that like my sisters and i kind of kept on looking at suspiciously like where he's like uh rubbing her shoulders and like what's going on here i think as a kid you're like oh something's going on here that i don't quite understand yet um and what did you think of that whole relationship did they do enough with it did they do too much with it did it work uh i i thought it worked because it was you know they had an antagonistic flirtation ship up until the very end right and then and then the kiss so you know to me you know as a kid i didn't know anything about like every movie had a love story so it was all just you know par for the course um it i don't think it was necessary but i didn't have a problem with it like yeah i don't know what what were your thoughts yeah i think it worked i think as a kid i was kind of like that was the part for me that i thought was i thought it was interesting when they were fighting but you know the whole like well, I think like the shoulder rub and then the kiss at the mm-hmm. end, like, I think I was at the age where I still thought it was gross. Like I didn't, sure. yeah. I didn't quite get it. Like I felt like, eh, it's kind of getting, getting in the way of the good stuff. But I think I appreciate that more now. Yeah. You were Fred sure. Savage in the, in the, <laughs> in the <laughs> oh, the kissing part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Nice. Um, so, okay. So they're at the farm. They really have this amazing campfire. I guess meditation. meditation. Yeah. So this looks like a big message, a big part of the movie uh, in the turtles lives where they realize their final lesson from splinter. They're worried about him. Um, t- tell me about the sequence. How does this sequence I mean, hit for you? I still cry every time. Like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. unapologetically cried as a kid when I saw it in the theaters for the first, second, third and fourth time. And I cry every time since, uh, you know, it's powerful. Like, obviously, I was so stupid as a kid, like, not stupid, just ignorant, you know, like that. I'm like, meditation can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching a movie about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles talking to a rat, and I'm like, but that part's real, right? The meditation. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's such a cool effect. You know, it comes out of the fire and they're all around, and, and, you know, there, it's such a uniting moment because, you know, they, they lost Splinter, they lost Raphael, now Raph's back, and now Splinter's like, and they really make it seem like he might not survive. And like you wonder, because the movie has so many surprises from 
what you thought you knew about the Ninja Turtles that I'm like, they could kill Splinter. Like, I didn't think they were going to, but they, they made me feel like it was possible. Right, right. And uh, I know, I, I think they did a great job where we all were afraid that something might happen to Splinter. And yeah. what do you think it is about Splinter in this movie? Because you're right, I, I still well up a bit when I have these Splinter scenes, especially when... S- Splinter, he's obviously very loving towards uh, the turtles who he's taken care of. Also, he says very touching things to Danny, you know, as Danny is trying to find his way. And what is it about Splinter that you think is so touching in this movie? He is the dad that everyone wishes they had. <laughs> like maybe, a, and I'm a, if you had a good dad, that's cool. Me and my dad had a pretty, pretty harsh relationship, but um, like, no matter how good your dad was, he probably wasn't as good as Splinter. Like if you did, congratulations, you're probably very doing great. But uh, Splinter was like the perfect dad. He was like, I'll take the pain, whatever, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, you don't touch the kids. Like this fight's between you and me, Danny. Like he just wanted to save everybody. He just wanted to be there to help everybody, but he didn't force it either. Like he just presented his case and I don't know. That's just a great dad. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, we've talked about the tie-ins between the karate kid and it's, he seems like a Miyagi figure in that he's a surrogate father, but also he has this, he doesn't fight much. It's like, he prefers not to fight. Like that's not the way until he absolutely needs to, you know, out of self-defense. It's like a very similar Miyagi S philosophy. Matt Moore, thanks for being a channel member. Matt says they straight up tortured splinter. That wouldn't fly today. Rich, just talking about this movie in general, what what other things in this movie just wouldn't fly today? Are, are there? Do you watch this now and realize that man, they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't do this today? I, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I don't think that, and I know this probably isn't exactly what he's talking about, but like again, back in the eighties, I felt like you just had to have a, like, where's the love story? It was just like, you know, it was like uh, like salt, like it's in every recipe, right, or whatever, and. Um, so I don't think they would do that. I don't think you would need that today. Although Casey Jones and April O'Neil like historically have a relationship with the comic books, but I'm going to say, I don't think you'd, you'd feel like you had to have it, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they tortured Splinter, but I mean, I, I just saw Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy three recently and no spoilers, but you know, there's, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes things get rough on movies, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything? I, I think that there are some scenes like we talked about master Tatsu, and like there's a scene where shredder just looks at him obviously like you sh- you failed you should be ashamed of yourself and then he walks away and then master tatsu he just gets so angry you know that he messed up and he goes and he takes it out on the kids and he just goes after him and he just wails on him in the locker room and to the point where one is on the floor and someone else checks his pulse like they think that he could have died, like he could have killed yeah. him. And I'm just psychologically, I think that's pretty dark. Like it shows oh, how yeah. bad Master Tatsu is, but I mean, I don't know if they would do that now. That just seems not like in a, a movie different... marketed to kids. I don't no. think. Yeah. No, no. So yeah, just it felt very adult for a kid's movie. Um yeah. so as we kind of get towards the uh end of the movie, um I don't know we have the reveal of uh Saki, you know who yeah. is uh 
shredder his tie-in with splinter uh and i don't know give us a sense of like that entire fight sequence and how the shredder character does the shredder character fulfill sort of the promise set up during the early part of the movie he is the bad guy based off just reputation and intimidation up till this point and Again, because the movie is different enough from what you know in the comics or the cartoons that like you don't really know what to expect. But you know that you've seen Tatsu fight and you know that he's pretty great. So you think, okay, if Shredder is like better than him, he's probably, you know, gonna be this real badass guy. So uh I kind of love that they waited till just the end to see them take on the Shredder. And I love that the turtles lose. Yeah. Right, because they do. They can't. They can't beat him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if they had just beaten him in the fight, it wouldn't have had near as much emotion. Because I said, I believe, and I, I, I think I make a pretty good argument for it. This movie is really about the dichotomy between Splinter and Shredder, which is funny now that I think about it. Because if you shred something, you might have splinters. Interesting. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's like I've never, never put those together before. Anyway, <laughs> but. Uh, but the fact that the turtles can't beat him because he's just that good and he is so slick that you can go, oh, I, I get why he can train all these fighters. I get why he can train Tatsu because he is amazing. And then, of course, you know, I, I the one thing I wish is that him and Splinter had more of a fight, but I'll take what I can get. Right. OK, so I'm going to ask you because we talked about what the movies were like back then and the movies are like today. I bet today there would be more of a fight. Like you'd see more of a fight. Um, Probably. Yeah. How though, how did they do it back then? I guess they were limited maybe by splinters puppetry, you know, and what they could do. But what about that confrontation? Do you think is successful? Uh, for instance, I feel like if they showed that fight today, they'd show too much of it. They'd show splinter yeah. maybe doing too much, but um I don't know. What do you think was very unique about that confrontation that worked so well uh, in 1990? I think it works really well still to this day. And I think the thing that works well about it is that the Shredder is clearly a superior fighter, right? He is stronger, taller, faster. You know, he's he's you're not going to beat him. But the, the reason he loses isn't because Splinter's a better fighter, which maybe we, we'll never know because we don't see it. But the reason he loses is because of his temper. Cause he can't like, he seems like this controlled guy, this whole movie. Does he barely move? Someone takes his cape off of him. Right. Even when he um, tries to finds the, the drawing on Danny, he doesn't move that much. He just kind of puts his hand up here and then just kind of goes down and then grabs it. And like, that's the most movement you really see from him until this fight when he is lightning fast. And so, you know, you see him just like so angry and he unhinges and that's, what is his ultimate downfall is not his fighting ability. It's his, it's his emotions. Right. And we see splinter whip out the nunchucks. Um, he, he swings shredder swings over the top and he's hanging off on the side of the building and he takes the knife out and he throws it at splinter. But that is his downfall uh, causes him to fall actually literally down to the garbage yeah. truck. Um, that whole thing, how did that, uh, his end, you know, we know it's not quite his end, uh, but in the movie, yeah. 
that's a that's a hell of a way to go out with uh, Casey Jones, which was I remember really funny going, oops, you know, and he, yeah. the trash compactor goes down. But that's pretty dark. What, what were your thoughts of that sequence? Well, first, I'll say that the one thing they do show us is that Splinter is very fast because, you know, he literally catches the knife. And that's the reason the shutter falls, but like catches it kind of with no problem. Doesn't seem like he's even putting effort into it. And then like seeing him in a trash compactor and then Casey Jones is a psychopath. <laughs> like I didn't think <laughs> right. about it as a kid, but like as an adult, right. I'm like, that man just, just crushed a man <laughs> without right. any, with and with a joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not even with remorse. Like, Hey, we have to do this. He's so bad. We have to do this. No, just like, oops, doodle. <laughs> Yeah, it's I know when when I watched this again, you know, in preparation for for this review, uh, I thought that same thing. I'm like, this is this is pretty dark. He just like yeah. happily crushes another human. Uh, but, you know, as a kid, of course, you're right. It all makes sense. Um, Alan says Casey Jones saying who's the broad yeah, in reference yeah. to April that would not fly. Um, Matt Moore says, oh, I remember hating that. uh Oh yeah, Danny. Danny, exactly. Uh, and then Jan says all the fight scenes involving weapons wouldn't fly today. To be honest, mm. some parents might feel sensitive to that, and they did at the time. It was a big backlash from parents that changed the future sequels. Um, T- Ninja Turtles two, pretty much. There were. I don't think they used the weapons. There might have been one point in the movie where they actually used the weapons in a fight. But otherwise, they didn't. Which yeah, they use a lot of like makeshift weapons out of the environment and stuff in in the second one, right? Uh, but yeah, the second one, like, I to me, this is a, a a movie, a piece of cinema, a piece of literature that holds up to this day. The second one isn't bad; it's got some fun stuff in it. But I mean, it, it feels more like a like a fun kids movie as opposed to right. like I want to rewatch this all the time. Right. Right. I know it's it's like it's targeted more to that audience and perhaps a bit um, less timeless, if if that makes sense. I like, would say um, so. Yeah, not as classic. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Um, right. And then uh, what what do you think about the uh, the uh, the ending word? <laughs> uh, cowabunga. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, 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 like that whole sequence. Well, that was great. And to me, it brings it all back to the fact that everything's built on like character based humor, um, Mm -hmm. lots of gags. And of course, that's cowabunga is the huge word that everyone knew from watching the television series. It was like this new word. And uh, it was great that we had that. And then Splinter saying, Oh, I made. I made a funny. I made part. a funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Uh, Jan Monza's Cowbunga. Um, Heck yeah. But I, I just loved how everything got back to humor. It was very dark in tone, but through it all, there was humor. Um, yeah. The, the turtles, even though they were down, um, you know, going back to the farm scene, Raphael, he wakes up, you know, and they're worried about him. And he says, Hey, What's a guy got to do to get some food some around, food here? around you know, here? Yeah, it's I love that attitude of like through adversity there. You always have to have a sense of humor like that. That's what gets you through. And um, so I yeah. love the, how the movie ended that way. I think that's one reason why we love like Spider-Man and like there's other characters that just like humor is just a necessary part of who who the who the turtles. Are. I mean, their name is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like if they get too dark, it's going to be a little silly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And Brian Fishback, who's been on KenCast, uh, brings up that alphabet game Casey and Mikey play. Uh, here goes Gak Face. Um, 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, they do fish breath. That, yeah. Fish breath. You know, it's, that's, that's really fantastic. I, I don't so mean we, to contradict, but my memory is that is Donatello. Are we sure? Actually, I think, I, th I think you're right, Rich. It is Donatello. Um, Cause I'm, I'm that not, was, yeah. cause I think she was drawing Donatello and they, they had that kind of anti antagonistic relationship when Donatello has no problem saying, Hey, you're a claustrophobic. And, yeah. and then, uh, you know, back, back, it's interesting. It's like of the time. And uh, he, Casey says, Hey, you know, you never even looked at another guy before, you know, just like all that kind of stuff. But it, they had that kind of uh, sort of antagonistic relationship. And okay. So, Let's go back. So we've kind of covered this movie and I definitely want to get your overall thoughts if we missed anything. Oh, yeah. But looking at this from a 1990 kids perspective, what was your review? Did it fulfill what you wanted? Um, what are your thoughts? You know what I what I loved about this movie the most as a kid is that it didn't give me what I wanted. It gave me something I didn't know I wanted. I was a, you know, way more a fan of the cartoon show and the toys than the, than the comic book. So I didn't really think about putting the comic book. I thought when they make a movie, oh, they're making a cartoon. They're turning the cartoon into a movie. And even if that's live action, it's still going to be in the spirit of, it's probably going to have the same music, you know, the same voices, anything like that. Kind of like the Transformers, you know, when that, their movie, you know, they use a lot of the same uh, things of that nature. Um, then some celebrity voices that didn't work, but you know, uh, it's all another podcast, but the, <laughs> but, uh, but um, I, they gave me something that I didn't know I wanted that I fell in love with more than the, th than the reason that got me there in the first place. That's a great, that is a great point. Now, hang on to that. Now let me, put you in a time machine and take you to 2023. You're an adult looking at this now. Um, how does this movie hold up in 2023? It, it clearly holds up. I mean, if, if anyone's reading the chat, people know this movie as well as I do. They know every line, you know, every word. And I like, I still, it's, it's, there's several movies I used to know every word of that I've lost because I don't care, but this is, this is one of two movies that I I will rewatch every year at least once without a doubt, and because it's just it's still I still enjoy it. I don't do it just because like I got to keep up my fandom. I do it because I still love this, and I think it clearly still speaks to a lot of other people. I've seen screenings of this movie at different theaters of like, and it always is a huge turnout. People love it. I mean, I don't do you like you rewatch it for this, but like, is this is this a movie that's in your like rewatch catalog at all? Do you, that kind of thing it is like i i probably rewatch it maybe once every five years or so and yeah that's huge I'm, that's huge like how many yeah. not many movies do that no and you know i'm tempted to say like obviously the tastes of the movie going public change i think we seem to be in a phase now where popular movies in my opinion tend to be a bit over long uh, you know, the fight sequences can be a bit bloated. They're not pushing the story as you're talking about similar to musicals, you know, those fight scenes, I don't think are pushing the story or aren't as interesting. Um, but those movies tend to be a bit overlong. And so I think by modern tastes, it's possible that this movie, it might be too, um, quick over and done with maybe light on the story details. Like there's a, there's a story there, but I'm wondering if now, according to the current taste, if it might be too quick, like um, 
which is possible. But the thing is, my preference has always been, and maybe because I grew up during this period, um, is for movies to be tighter, uh, for them to be shorter. And to me, it's like with the fight scenes and the humor, everything's tight. It keeps moving. Uh, it yeah. has that energy. It doesn't sag. And uh, so I think in the long run, this movie will continue to live on through the decades, I hope, um, for that very reason, that it's paced well, it has that great humor. And I'm with you, Rich. I hope that the suits in this movie continue to be accepted by future generations. I don't know. Like maybe people in the comments can let us know if kids are eh about the suits, if they work. Uh, but it's amazing, I think, what they did with martial arts, not only the performances, like the physical performances, uh, the performances of the puppetry, as you said, like just the yeah. empathy you have for them based on their performances, but the martial arts sequences, they were able to like do these fight oh, scenes. I don't know how they did that uh, in these things. I kind of hope someday, Rich, with future Ninja Turtles movies, they try to do these types of suits again. Like um, I can I just so. imagine just the technology now um, where, where they're not CG, but they're real. Like I, I, I don't hate Michael Bay. There's a lot of Michael Bay movies I actually really like, but his take sure. on the turtles felt like he was punching me right in the face. Like I, he was just like, rich, you want to hate yourself. Like I was like, <laughs> I went to that movie going, I know it's not going to be as good as the original, but it'll still be good to see the turtles. No, it was terrible. It was terrible. And the turtles are great. Like some, you know, people have invoked a couple of other movies that I haven't seen all the iterations of the turtles, but uh, I have seen some. And, and as I said, that Batman versus TMNT is really great. Uh, someone brought up the video games, a lot of great classic video games, the turtles right. for the arcade, the Nintendo game, all that stuff. Right. Um, I know. And, and that's a whole other thing too. Like uh, yeah. this world has gotten huge. And I think you know, I was into those video games, you know, the Nintendo games, the arcade sure. games. Um, it, it all seemed to to flow along nicely. I think it seemed like those arcade games seem to be based more on the TV show, which makes sense. Um, yeah. I really, I if there's one thing that I feel, I guess, bad about is the fact that nothing's really followed in the tone of this movie. I don't, I don't think. Um, like yeah. it, it doesn't seem like whether it's, I could be wrong because I've kind of stepped away from it. Like I saw the first three in the theaters. Um, I didn't see TMNT, which I guess was supposed to be kind of a part four. I thought it was um, fun. That was fun. What, what? Yeah. So did you think, so I, we could do separate podcasts on each of these movies. Maybe Rich, sure. you'd like to, um, you know, I, I think it'd be very it. interesting to dive deep into and guys let us know if you'd like to see more. Um, but yeah. kind of, if you give us kind of an overview what were your thoughts on the other movies that you've seen? Well, as I said, the second one, again, I, I don't have any hate for it, but I mean, it just, it does feel like a step down in quality a little bit. It steps more like a children's movie than, uh, than a piece of cinema. The third one, I bear, I don't really remember. I saw it in the theaters. I, I didn't like it and I never rewatched it. Um, TMNT, the uh, animated feature film from, I want to say 2006 something i could be way off on that maybe maybe you know 10 i don't know but um it was good you know it was it was fun it was definitely a different take on it um you know there was there was magic and you know different things of that nature so it was definitely more um as of this movie even though their teens written the turtles feels real whereas you know that movie wasn't wasn't intended to but it's still a lovely film and uh in mckellen is like in it and uh, i believe uh april is played by um 
uh, Buffy, uh, whose name's escaping, but oh, um, Sarah Michelle Geller, Sarah Michelle Geller. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's the other cool voices in it, but I like it. I've rewatched it a couple of times. It's definitely up there. As I said, Batman versus TMT. Great. There's, there was a TMT movie that came out like a year or two ago that my friend told me that I still haven't seen yet that everyone tells me is really awesome. Uh, and then of course the new one that either just came out or is about to, uh, I haven't seen that one yet either. I haven't seen it either. Um, I've heard lots of good things. Drew Rohalley, who's on KenCast sometimes, he said he loved it. Um, I think, Al, you said you saw it with Emmett. Uh, and so that's so that's cool. I, I'm looking forward to checking that out. It looks different. You know, it's like a different conception, maybe different characterization of the turtles, uh, which is cool. You know, I, I love yeah. the idea that. Um, but, oh, man, there's something about this movie that they nailed. And I'm yep. kind of surprised that that it, it almost seemed like a one-off and, and no one was interested in trying to follow in this movie's footsteps. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful we got it. There was a million reasons this movie shouldn't have been made. You know, the script had problems. They went through a bunch of directors. There was a bunch of distributors that didn't want it. You know, it, 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 the, the budget was problems. There were shooting problems. I mean, there was like a lot of, there's a lot of good movies like this that, you know, just, it's insane that it got made, but I'm just so grateful for it. Like it is such a defining uh, piece of pop culture for me uh, and, you know, allows us to talk about it today. And, and you know, like Three Ninjas. Oh, yeah, Jazz. I, I love Three Ninjas. I, I watched the heck out of that movie. Uh, right. Yeah, it was more kids, 100%. But yeah, absolutely. Right. Fake, fake Terry Silver. That's what I thought when I saw Three Ninjas. I was like, this guy's kind of like the Terry Silver, but not as good. They they, they had to have been thinking of Terry Silver, I, I think. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yes. 100%. And, uh, you know, we, I, I've had some people on on uh, the live stream who have said that Terry Silver would make an amazing Ninja Turtle enemy. Uh, and, and I kind of agree. Somehow he would he would fit. Uh, I'd I think, love to see that crossover. Look, if the, if TMNT and Karate Kid universes ever want to cross over, take my money. <laughs> yep, I, I totally agree. And um, I think that would be my suggestion. I. I want to get your suggestion to the universe or maybe to the studios who make these movies of what you'd like in Ninja Turtle content going forward. But I would love a return to the tone of this movie. I love it. I'd love right. to see someday another movie try to do the suits. I love the actual real martial arts sequences. Um, as Rich, as you were saying, that is, you know, photographed very well. We have a sense of space. We get to see these very the talented stunts. stunt stunts. Um, I, I, gosh, this. I'd love to see stunts again. Um, you know, it, yeah. no CG. And at the very least, maybe a new remaster of this movie, like a 4K remaster, and sure. maybe even a cut. Like if there's a longer cut of this movie or uh, a director's maybe cut or something. Yeah, 100%. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That would be great. And, I'd, I'd be all for that. Well, Rich, do you have like any sort of thoughts to wrap up this movie? Uh, to people who have seen it or haven't seen it. Uh, I mean, I, I can talk about it forever, but um, I will say, I believe it was Sam Rockwell's first movie and almost no one who isn't a hardcore fan realizes that he was even in it. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's just a smaller part, but an important part, but uh, yeah. It's, and you know he would go on to be an Oscar winner. So it's like you're welcome Sam Rockwell for this movie <laughs> happening. He would have been fine. Very talented boy. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I want to shout out Kevin Clash. Not that he needs me to. He's doing great. But the man has spent almost his entire career being Elmo and or other puppets for like five and under kind of age children. 
but he crushes splinter so hard there's so much heart in that voice that uh and you know i I know that any actor can be talented, even if they don't aren't known for something. But it is just so cool to where this guy goes, "I'm Elmo, I'm Elmo," and then, "Oh, you want me to to really just do this iconic character better than anyone's ever done it? No problem." A hundred percent agree with that. He, yeah, he was amazing, and as you said, he he brought tears to our eyes. Still, still does uh, with yeah. that performance, and. Maybe you put your finger on what makes this so special is Jim Henson's team, including Kevin Clash, all the puppets, uh, and just their decades of experience in getting these amazing, sincere performances through puppetry. And yeah. I think that's something this movie is so innovative with. And um, I, I don't know if we've seen it like that since. It was really, I think, a very special time. I, I don't hate CGI. I really don't. And I think CGI, you know, when we when we were on um, the Nostalgia Market, I'm talking about Terminator 2, like that CGI was great. It served the story. But when you, when you can put a real effect in instead of CGI, I think it's always better. And I think these suits and the fighting done in these suits and the weapons and, and, and all this stuff made this movie that timeless feel that we're talking about. Right. Yeah, 100% agree. And it just makes us buy into this world, the real is the reality of this world. Um, and I see Stripe the Warrior, he he quotes, you fight well fight in the well, old style. Old style. Go ahead, Rich. You've caused me enough trouble. Now you face <laughs> the warrior. <laughs> Stripe the warrior. The shredder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, see, like yeah, you can re recite it. Oh yeah, I, I can still yeah. Um, I, I I don't mean to brag, <laughs> but I'm a 42 year old man that still knows every word to teenage. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, Rich. In fact, it makes me admire you. I just want oh, to. God bless you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. And uh, yeah, if you're into it, you mentioned games, Rich. Uh, Strife says Shredder's Revenge DLC is coming out. By the way, maybe I oh. uh, get to play a Shredder. Wow, very cool, very cool. You, um, I didn't know about that. You, you were talking about like movies you wish you could see. You know what? I, I, I I've never seen an iteration. They, I'm sure they have it in comic books or something, but I've never. I'd love to see a movie of it. Is the uh, the origin story in Japan? Oh yeah, that would be great. Yeah, uh, Saki and Hamato Yoshi and the Rat and um and uh, oh, the 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 love interest whose name I can't remember. Um, yes. yeah, but all that. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, it's a great yeah. world. Uh, it, it's an amazing story. I I hope they explore that. Um, and in the meantime, Rich, I guess we have to do our homework and uh, see the new movie sometime. I'm, I'm on board. Let's do it. Okay, that's great. Um, well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank and you. I, I've just learned so much listening to you and your perspective on this movie. And I think our review today shows why it's considered a classic by many of our generations. So thank, um, thank you so much, Ken. I, I love talking about this movie and I love talking with you. So this is heaven. Likewise. And everyone who joined us today in the live chat, thank you so much. It's great to hear your thoughts. Um, if you're watching this on the replay, let us know what you think down in the comments and we'll 
those comments are forever. So we'll get to see those and we'll read those. And uh, thank you for watching KenCast. Be sure to subscribe, hit that notification bell so you don't miss anything going forward. If you want Rich and I to talk about the sequels, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and 3, let us know. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do that. So thank you so much. And to everyone listening on the audio version, thank you as well. We look forward to seeing you next time in KenCast. And we hope you have a, a great rest of your weekend. Want to be part of the live KenCast show? Subscribe to the Ken Cole YouTube channel and hit the notification bell to get alerts about every new show. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time on KenCast. Mm-hmm.